Well, I'm here with Tom Ellsworth, uh, who was the lead minister of Sherwood Oaks for 40 years. So Tom, when you look back on your time at Sherwood Oaks, what is a favorite memory that just kind of stands out? Okay. Well, having the favorite would be like trying to choose which one is my favorite grandchild. I just can't do it. All of my favorite memories revolve around the people here, and uh, Elsie and I miss, miss everybody a lot. But there's one memory that, that goes all the way back to the early days, just right after our daughter Emily was born. And uh, Mary and Marion Young had a, a daughter, Janie, who was uh, mentally challenged. And Janie worked at Stone Belt, and you know, she didn't make a lot of money, but she took her hard-earned money and bought this beautiful little frilly dress for our daughter Emily as a present shortly after her birth and was so thrilled and so excited to give that to Emily. And I've looked back on that and remembered that that's just the character of the people that are here. So loving, so giving, so excited about doing something for somebody else. And so I look back with great memories on that. Yeah, that's a great story, man. Um, so when you think about the church, you know, we're in this Church yes. Matters series yes. because we believe that the church still matters Absolutely. and the people still matter to the church. And so why would you say, you know, from your experience, both as a lead minister here for so many years and, and even in the last couple of years, as, as you have uh, done a variety of different things mm -hmm. of serving the church, uh, why does the church still matter? In my mind, the church matters as much today as it ever has, if not more. It is the only plan that God has. You take the church out of the picture and we have nothing. It's not like God has multiple plans or multiple families. God had one chosen family, the church, to get the message of Jesus Christ out to the world. And it's true, we have a personal relationship with Jesus and we have our personal moments of worship. Church, there, there's nothing like the church. It is the only plan that God had for saving of the lost world. So if the church is out of the picture, there's no picture left. And so for me, the church matters because it is the only thing that happens in this world that has to do with eternity. There are a lot of good things you can do with your life, but what you do in the body of Christ affects and impacts not only our personal eternity, but the eternity of other people. One of my concerns coming out of the, this whole COVID time, Sean, is that, and I know you share this concern, is that when, when people got accustomed to watching worship on their computer screens yeah. and yeah. sitting in their pajamas, drinking a cup of coffee, that yeah. they kind of like that. That's an emergency fix. Mm -hmm. That's not a long-term fix. It's like when the doctor says, well, you've just had surgery. You need to be in bed for a couple days until your body recovers. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's fine. But if you say, I kind of like this, and you never get out of bed again, mm -hmm. you're gonna die. Your, yeah. your body's gonna atrophy. The muscles are gonna go away. The same thing is true in church. We need one another and we need that face-to-face -face contact and we need to be in the body together because the church is the only thing that's gonna get us through the tough times in this world. So the church matters as much as it ever has. Yeah, and thanks for joining us you're, today. You're welcome, glad Appreciate to be here. This. Morning, church. It is so nice to be back with you today. Uh, oh, it's just good to see your faces and to get to talk to you and uh, spend some time with you. I'm grateful for Sean's invitation to preach today. I I'm grateful for the text that he assigned me. I'm grateful for the topic that he gave me uh, because I really believe that the church matters. And, and the subject that I've been given this morning is, what kind of church is this? You've been invited to a friend's house for supper, and as you sit down around the table, your hostess serves a suspicious-looking casserole. 
With the first bite, you whisper under your breath, what kind of a meal is this? Now, that question could be asked from a lot of standpoints. It could be asked with excitement. This is really good. It could be curiosity. It could be concern or even fear. You want to know in case you have to take antacids a little bit later. Or you're attending your child's elementary school talent show and some child prodigy sits down at the piano and plays Chopin's Polonaise in A-flat major and you whisper under your breath, what kind of kid is this? You want to know because you're inspired and you want to applaud and encourage such talent. What kind of church is this? I wonder how many of you actually asked that question on your first visit. Now, when I first started preaching years ago, the only way a person could get a feel for the congregation was to attend a worship service. Today, I, I think many people attend electronically. I, I mean, it's, it's a good way to get a feel for the church's culture, their style of music, the, the attire they wear. It's also a safe way to make sure that this is not one of those churches that handle snakes. In my mind, folks, snakes and church don't go together. As a matter of fact, I don't think snakes go with anything in this life. So, we, we, you know, people come with that question. And when they ask the question, what kind of church is this? It might be out of excitement. It might be out of inspiration. Maybe curiosity, concern, fear. The list is almost endless. What kind of church is this? Is Sherwood Oaks Christian Church part of a denomination? Why is the name Christian used? I, I thought all churches were Christian. Why do they take the Lord's Supper every week? What kind of heritage does this congregation have? Why don't they provide pillows in the pews to make naps easier? The questions probably are endless in your mind. But before, before I actually answer that question, let, let me say this. I really appreciate this current sermon series. Church matters. Scripture tells us that the church is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and the family of God. Now, I don't know any human being who would suggest that the body doesn't matter, or any husband that would say the bride doesn't matter, or any parent that would say the family doesn't matter. And if this is who the church is, and I believe it is, church matters. So what kind of church is this? With the 60th anniversary just around the corner, we could talk about six decades of faithful service in this community. But, you know, that really would only answer a small part of the question. We need to take just a few minutes this morning and journey back in time and pick up a bit of history. <laughs> now, I know some of you are thinking, oh, I don't like history. It's boring. Well, sometimes it might be, but sometimes it's not. Governor Woodrow Wilson, before being elected the 28th U.S. president, in a speech at a Denver rally in the year 1911, said this, a nation which does not remember what it was yesterday does not know what it is today nor what it is trying to do. We're trying to do a futile thing if we do not know where we came from or what we have been about. Now, what's true of a nation is also true of the church. 
When we as God's people do not remember who we have been in the past, we cannot know who we are today nor what we are trying to accomplish for the future. When we forget the history of our spiritual heritage, we will lose something priceless. At the outset of the 19th century, the church in America was kind of a mess. It could be creedal, divisive, sectarian, and contentious. And then something amazing happened. It became known as the Second Great Awakening. And we need to go to Kentucky for just a minute. <laughs> I know, I know. It's no place that a Hoosier wants to go. But we're going to go to Kentucky because there was a revival there that changed the lives of some 20,000 people. It was called the Cane Ridge Meeting. It was a week-long event outdoors with with dozens, if not hundreds, of different preachers preaching. It came in August of 1801, and it profoundly affected the life of a young man by the name of Barton Warren Stone, a Presbyterian preacher. And after this event, he began to rethink the way the church was ministering in frontier America. At that time, folks, you got to remember that Kentucky and Indiana, Ohio and Illinois, they were all the frontier. He simply wanted to get away from all the sectarianism in the church of that period and get back to the simplicity of what the Bible teaches. He wanted to call the church simply Christian. By the way, the, name, the, the word Christian means belonging to Christ. And he wanted to take the word of God as the only form of practice and doctrine. Well, no man-made creeds. No man-made dogmas, just simply the Scripture. Now, others quickly began to embrace what Stone was teaching, and churches began to, to just pop up all over the Ohio Valley with the name simply Christian Church. About the same time in western Pennsylvania, a father and son team by the name of Thomas and Alexander Campbell, also Presbyterian preachers, were coming to similar conclusions. Now, they weren't just... Presbyterians. They were old light, anti-burger, seceder Presbyterians. And those were distinctions for political issues that were in Scotland where the church had migrated from. Now the strange thing is those were not political issues in America. But guess what the church did? It kept its lines of division clear. They got discouraged from that, and they decided this is not what God has called us to do. They pulled away from their roots with many of the same ideas, and they joined forces with Barton Stone, and this movement became known as the Restoration Movement, the fastest-growing movement in the early 19th century on frontier America. And out of this movement came these principles and practices. The Scriptures alone are the source of Christian teaching. Churches should function in congregational freedom, no denominational authority. Evangelism must be a major concern. Faith in Christ and obedience to him are all that is necessary to become a Christian. Baptism, the practice of immersion, unites the believer with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. A weekly observance of the Lord's Supper is central to congregational worship. Local churches are under the oversight of a plurality of elders. The name Christian identifies the church with the person of Jesus Christ only. 
Now, these principles rested upon a foundation of unity on the basis of biblical authority. Those were two of the most founding principles, unity on the basis of biblical authority. You see, the two serve as sort of a check and balance. If you focus on unity to the exclusion of biblical authority, then you'll believe anything. Because unity is the end result. It doesn't matter what you believe. We just want to be one united group. If you focus, however, on the other side of the coin, on your interpretation of biblical authority, you don't care about unity. You just keep drawing your circle ever smaller and tighter until it's just you that's left in that circle. And so this two-pronged foundation maintains a healthy balance. Unity on the basis of biblical authority. Rupertus Maldinius, <laughs> a Lutheran minister, authored the following in a tract that he published in the year 1626. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. That became a clear and succinct statement that was embraced by our restoration movement uh, pre forefathers. It might seem clear today if we would say it like this. I, I like to say it this way better. In matters of faith, unity. In matters of opinion, liberty. And in all things, love. There were some other slogans and catchphrases that came out of those early days. Where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we're silent. No creed but Christ. No book but the Bible. No law but love. Not the only Christians, but Christians only. And you say, yeah, but that was 200 years ago. True. Are these principles still relevant today? I mean, after all, the Restoration Movement certainly didn't solve all of the church-related issues of the day, and it's had its own divisions through the years. All of that is true. But before we casually dismiss the past, let's take a moment to consider the lasting value of long-term wisdom. American culture has evolved a lot since the Constitution was ratified in 1788. And yet the wisdom of that guiding document is still readily apparent 234 years later in our nation. I would suggest that the ideals espoused by Campbell and Stone are as relevant today as they have ever been. The plea for unity on the Bible's authority is vital. You know, I don't have to agree with everybody's opinions to work and serve for the good of the kingdom alongside of them. In studying Campbell and Stone, folks, they didn't agree on every issue, but they found a way to work together for the good of the church. They found a way to be united on Scripture. Now, that seems to me to be a pattern worth following today. What do you think? And as to our practices I have yet to witness an immersion that did not bring hugs and tears of joy and applause and cheering because of that incredible moment. And no matter how often I participate in the Lord's Supper, like we did a few minutes ago, it never grows old to me because it is central to my worship. In my mind, it is the most important thing we do on a Sunday morning. And honestly, I can't think of a way to improve upon the name Christian church, belonging to Christ. The simplicity of this name seems fitting for any generation. 
What's more, it identifies us with the only one who matters, Jesus. Our text this morning comes from the Gospel of John. So if you've got your scriptures, turn to John 17. It'll be on the screen if you don't have them. But I, it, it's always good when we can read it out of scriptures together. This dialogue in chapter 17 is a part of a, a lengthy dialogue that begins basically back in chapter 13. John gives us details that Matthew, Mark, Luke don't. Uh, and it takes place in the upper room on the night before the cross. Jesus is sharing his last words with his apostles. And, and at the end of chapter 13, Judas has already left to go do his traitorous deed. And Peter is sitting there reeling from what Jesus just told him. Jesus had said, Peter, before the rooster crows twice tonight, you will have denied me three times. Peter doesn't believe it, but wow. And this is the tenor at the end of chapter 13. And maybe Jesus sensing their distress. Chapter 14 opens up with these words. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. And he goes on with that beautiful passage. And chapters 14 through 16 then are our Lord's last briefing for those who would pick up the mantle and run with it with the church. Chapter 17, however, Jesus shifts gears again and he prays. It is the most extensive single prayer of Jesus recorded in Scripture. This is no ordinary prayer, folks. Many refer to this uh, who have studied it as Jesus' high priestly prayer because it parallels what the high priest would have prayed on the day for the Jewish nation, the Day of Atonement, the most holy event in Jewish history. Every year they celebrated the Day of Atonement when symbolically the sins of the people were taken away in this ceremony. And the high priest's prayer would have begun with the consecration of the high priest himself. Then he would pray for his colleagues. And then he would pray for all of the people. Jesus does the same thing. As, as, as this prayer opens up, he prays for himself. Then his colleagues, the disciples. And then lastly, he prays for us. Us. Those who are yet to come. Those who would believe because of the testimony of the apostles. So John chapter 17 verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, O-N-E, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This prayer reveals the Lord's heart in his last moments of his earthly ministry. What we've read in his prayer for us is that they may be one and brought to complete unity that the world may believe. Now, Folks, since our Lord prayed for unity, and since our heritage is one of unity on the authority of God's word, I think unity still matters. So, so let me share just briefly this morning a few things about unity. 
First of all, what, what's the barrier to unity? What, why do we struggle with unity so much? What barriers are there? I remember 35 years ago when President Ronald Reagan stood next to the Berlin Wall and challenged the Soviet Union with these words, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. How many of you remember that? Those of you, oh, okay, yeah, this is his first service. Yeah, that's right, okay. <laughs> well, two years later, the wall did come down, but it took a lot longer for East Germany and West Germany to reunite, to tear down the interior walls of lives and everything else. You know, we'd save ourselves a lot of time, work, and energy if we never built walls between people in the first place. And we build walls between friends, co-workers, neighbors, political parties, cultures, races, generations. We even build walls in our homes between our spouses. <laughs> After another nasty argument with her husband, Sally went to see a fortune teller about her future. The old woman gazed into her crystal ball and responded, Oh, I see bad news. Your husband is going to die a violent death. Oh my, Sally gasped. Do you see me getting away with it? <laughs> Why do we build walls? Well, we build them out of fear and insecurity. Our lack of confidence, our fear of being seen as foolish, our poor self-esteem oftentimes causes us to build walls to protect our image. Or sometimes it's pride and prejudice. Pride says, I can do it better. I can explain it better. I can build it better. I have a better idea. I have better skills. I have a better plan. In essence, what we're saying is, I am better. And so we build walls to protect our ego. But the truth is, we aren't better, folks. Don't forget, the graveyard is full of indispensable people who thought life could not go on without them. Don't build walls of pride. We build walls out of opinions and judgments. We treat our opinions and judgments as true and accurate, the best. And we can't understand how someone else would see it any other way. Consequently, we build walls to protect our views. That way, our thinking is never challenged. But opinions are just that, folks. They're opinions. They may be good, but they're not always the only way to look at something. Rick Warren wrote this. He said, an opinion is something you hold. A conviction is something that holds you. An opinion is something you'll argue about. A conviction is something you will suffer for and, if necessary, die for. Oh, folks, stand firm in your conviction for Jesus Christ, but don't build walls around your opinions. And unfortunately, the church is not immune to this unity issue either. In Acts, do you know what prompted the appointment of the first deacons? It was a wall between the Grecian Jews and the Hebrew Jews. It seems the Grecian widows were being ignored while the Hebrew widows were being fed with the daily distribution of food. And so these deacons were created to make sure that didn't happen any longer. And it's been a part of the church's life <laughs> ever since. I know of a church here in southern Indiana with purple carpet. I, yeah, exactly. I asked, when I, I preached a revival there years ago, I asked, why purple carpet? And here's the answer I got. 
It was because they couldn't settle on a color, and purple was the only color nobody wanted. <laughs> there, there is a struggle with unity even in the body of Christ. We build walls when we shouldn't. So what is the basis for unity? Well, you'd think with a name like the United Nations or the United Center in Chicago, one might think that'd be a good place to start to look for unity. <laughs> uh, given the seeming corruption and in constant discord, I don't think the UN is a place of unity. And whenever the Chicago Bulls play or the Blackhawks hockey team takes the ice, they have an opponent who's not too interested in unity either. Even our United States are not so united. So what about the church? When, is one search, when one is searching for unity, shouldn't the church be the first place to look? I mean, Jesus prayed for it, and the New Testament writers have encouraged it, but unfortunately, because we human beings can be cantankerous at times, unity can be hard to come by even in the Lord's family. Unity always breaks down when me matters more than we. I suspect there are many in this room who would disagree with me on several issues. And if you want to be wrong, that is your privilege. <laughs> See, there's the problem. The truth is, we has to become more important than me in the body of Christ. How do we find unity? Okay. Indulge me for a minute. I want you to do something for me. On the count of three, I want everybody to speak out loud their first name. Okay? You can do that, all right? On three. One, two, three. I could not understand one single name out of that. It sounded a bit chaotic out there. Now, do this for me. On the count of three, everybody say Jesus. One, two, three. Jesus. What a difference. I understood that clearly and plainly because in that moment, we spoke with unity. Here's the thing. You and I will never find unity in our opinions, in our thoughts, in our ideals. We will find unity in Christ. A.W. Tozer wrote in The Pursuit of God, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each must individually bow. So it is in the church. Unity will not be found in our opinions, our talents, our styles, our accomplishments, or even our generation. It is found in Christ alone. Last thought, building unity. How then can we build unity on the basis of biblical authority? Well, Colossians chapter 3 verse 13 simply reminds us to bear with one another. This is the ability to put up with people's quirks, oddities, and idiosyncrasies. It is realizing that while you're putting up with somebody else's oddities, they're putting up with yours. Unity demands that we bear with each other. <laughs> I've always liked this little poem. To live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. To live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. And isn't it true? It's not always easy to get, to get along here. 
I think bearing with each other is more than merely putting up with somebody. I believe it is a positive approach to others. It is thinking the best of them. It is giving them a second chance to make a good first impression. It's being positive about that person when it would be easier to be negative about that person. And we all need to do our best to get along. Psalm 133.1 says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Be humble to each other. Bear with each other. Be humble to each other. Now, folks, humility is not a cringing, groveling servility. It is not viewing ourselves as the scum of the earth and everybody better. Humility is the absence of self-exaltation. It's always keeping a proper perspective on God's place and our place. It's been said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Early in the summer, I watched this big old John Deere combine went through a wheat field. And every time I see wheat being harvested, I'm always reminded that in the wheat field, it is the heads that are bowed low that produce the best harvest. So it is in the life of the body. The humblest among us is usually the most productive. Unity grows out of humility. And then encourage one another William Arthur Ward said, flatter me and I may not believe you. Criticize me and I may not like you. Ignore me and I may not forgive you. Encourage me and I will never forget you. Every generation in the church is valuable and contributes to the good of the body. Therefore, every generation should encourage the other generations in the body of Christ as well. When we focus on self, unity suffers. When we encourage one another, unity blooms. In these last couple of years, as I have been mentoring and coaching other ministers and serving in interim capacities with other churches, I have witnessed firsthand the devastating results when people in the church stand firm on their opinions or pridefully insist that their way is the only way or they become critical of others instead of encouraging others. Unity is oh so fragile, but oh so important. If it was a major theme of our Lord's final prayer, the most extensive prayer, don't you think it ought to be a priority for us? In the church, our unity can only be found in him and in his word. Unity on the basis of biblical authority. And there we stand. I came across this letter many years ago now in the Christian record. Now, that was published back in the 1800s, and the one that I'm going to quote to you was in 1867, published in Indianapolis. And a preacher by the name of William F. Mavity had moved to southern Indiana, actually in the area where I grew up, uh, and he would move there for ministry. And after being there 18 months, he sent a report about his ministry that was published in the Christian record. And this is what he wrote. <laughs> He said, I have confined my labors to southern Indiana from motives of benevolence. The churches here are more destitute of efficient proclaimers than any other part of the state. Now, that wasn't necessarily the good news of the letter. But he goes on. But 
Thank God this dark corner is illuminated by the faithful teaching of B.T. Goodman, Ira and Sylvester Scott, Abner and Lehu Connor, Wood, Mitchell, Lang, McKinney, and Miller, a self-sacrificing band who in the devotion to the cause they have espoused would have been an honor to the Grecian heroes who bled and conquered at Marathon. They have no such word as fail in their vocabulary, but are worthy to be pleaders of the cause pled by Barton, Warren, Stone, and many others now in paradise, end quote. Now, folks, when I found that, that was finding buried treasure for me. My great-great-grandfather, Abner Connor, and his brother are listed as one, some of those preachers in that list. I suddenly had a great connection to my past. And then I looked at those names again, and I realized those were the guys who made sure there was a church in Huntingburg, Indiana. The church where I found Jesus Christ. I owe these men my spiritual life. Had they not done what they did 155 years ago plus, I would not be here today. I certainly wouldn't be in ministry. Might not even know Jesus Christ. And then it hit me. The churches these men established are still at it. 155 years later, they're still changing lives because of their unity in Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you this morning that what Sherwood Oaks has to offer 100, 125, 150 years from now, if the Lord tarries, is that if you stay faithful to the cause and you continue in the Word of God and unity with one another, there will be people a century and a half from now who will look back to you and say, because they were faithful. I am on my way home to heaven. I want others to know that we were united on the basis of God's word. Let there be no such word as fail in our vocabulary. Why? Because the church matters. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the day. We are grateful for your church. We are grateful that you have included us as partners with you in the most incredible work in the world. Bless this congregation, Lord, not just now, but for decades and centuries to come, that the light of the gospel, the light of unity on the basis of your word's authority will shine brightly from here. In Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org/messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.